on digital radio across the UK, on the Union Jack app, and on that Alexa lady. This is Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory. Today, Christopher Biggins takes Jeff on a trip down memory lane on Union Jack Radio. Well, today we find out how and where you forge a show business legend, Christopher Biggins. Hello. <laughs> Good morning. How are you? I, I'm well. Now, this this is unlikely, but we we start very briefly in Oldham. Yes. Uh, what's the best way to Oldham? Well, <laughs> See, there's an old panto, there's an old panto oh, going for dear, you. Oh yeah, dear, yeah. oh dear. <laughs> yes, I'm very proud of the fact I was born in Oldham. However, I was only there for three weeks because it was my father's hometown. And uh, my mother uh, was a, a Hampshire hog. She was Southampton. And my mother absolutely hated Oldham. I mean, A, it was December, so it was cold. Uh, I had pneumonia. I nearly died. I was a very frail baby. You can't believe it now. You're a frail baby. Oh yes, I was. I was. You know, it was. It was all disaster. So she packed us all up in a Pickford's lorry and wrapped me in cotton wool. And to this day, I am still allergic to cotton wool. I can't bear the touch of cotton wool. Oh, it's horrible, isn't horrible. it? Yeah, yeah. So I put it down to that. And then we arrived in Salisbury, and that's where I spent uh, my first 16... Well, no, my first 18 years of life. So Salisbury is Christopher Biggins' hometown. Salisbury is my hometown, yes, exactly, which so, I'm thrilled So by. the first place you lived, uh, you'll have no memory of this, I'm sure, but the first place you lived in Salisbury with your mum and dad, where, where was that? Well, the first place was a, a very nice house, which I have no memory at all. And they actually bought it, and they bought it for like something, like eight or nine hundred pounds. And we have to be careful, but just in case there are any millennials listening to this, they're very sensitive about property prices, and, and it, I think it's they take it as a personal <laughs> affront if they hear that you could buy property for those kind of numbers. No, so anyway, going back to sources, so I don't remember that much, but I do remember we lived in a, a caravan on a, uh, a, the grounds of a, a hotel just outside Salisbury. So what, what age were you at this point? I think I was about three. And I remember it vividly only because I was inquisitive as a child. And there was a, a sort of uh, a um, warehouse. And I went into the warehouse. I must have been on my own. And I was rummaging around. And I managed to put my hand into a rat trap. And... Only because I was so young did it really not, because the bones weren't particularly well formed, right. did I not manage to have the whole hand removed. But in fact, you can see there is, there is sort of slightly bent, if I may yes, say, use yes. the expression. Yeah, you um, wouldn't notice it unless it was pointed, no, at, exactly. pointed out. No, exactly. But anyway, so that was, uh, that was the, the, the very exciting bit. We lived in a caravan, which I loathe caravans, because in those days, I mean, I, I've always fancied now having a Winnebago, because they're, they're, you know, there's American things. Like what the film stars are in on the exactly. sets. Exactly. Yes. I fancy, well, as, as you, if you're on tour in London, uh, in England, to drive around in one of those, you know, they've got showers, colour TV, fridge, freezers, everything you could want. Ours had very little... 
And I remember every morning we used to wake up and we were covered in water because of the condensation. I mean, they were pretty grim <laughs> 70 years ago. So, so do you not have, uh, do you not have like fond memories of the sound of rain on a caravan roof? Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that was a very fond memory, I can tell you. Uh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't the greatest, but then we moved to a rented property in Sydney Street, which is where I spent most of my formative years. And from what age was that? I think I must have been about five or six, because so, I went to a school at the end of the road. So I'm kind of interested, I'm interested in your parents. So I'm sort of firstly interested in what happened, that they bought this house in Salisbury, and then not long after that they had to sell it and you were living in a well, caravan. Well, they, no, they had no money, right. uh, and they ran out of money, or rather, you know, things were tight, and they had to uh, live. And my father was, uh, he repaired motorbikes. And I don't think the business was that good. My mother used to work. Um, she used to go, she was a, a waitress, at a, a, a cocktail waitress at a hotel. Um, and things were tight, money-wise. So we went to, we went to uh, Sydney Street and uh, we went to this house. There was no uh, bathroom. There was a, a, a loo out of the back, which always terrified me going to because it was dark at night and everything. And then on Monday, Mum would bring out the tin bath and put it in front of the fire, and she'd boil up the water in a boiler, and that was bath night. Wow. I mean, it was extraordinary. And uh, do you still, whether you need it or not, have a bath once a week? <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio. They were great days, though. It was fantastic. And uh, then we had a bathroom put in. As my father became more successful, he then started to... So, so he had a touch of the wheeler dealer to him. He oh, always had a scheme going, my right? Goodness. He was a real wheeler dealer. So he sold... He started to sell motorbikes and he sold cars and then he he uh, repaired both cars and, and uh, motorbikes. And he was very successful and... Uh, they worked very hard, both my parents, to because I was an only child at that particular time. Um, uh, they they were worked very hard to send me to a private school, uh, which was called St Probus, um, and then uh, it was there that I learned to speak the Queen's English because all my family talked like that because they're all from Wiltshire, and my father had a sort of uh, a Cockney plus North Country plus. Uh, uh, West Country accent, which was uh, unbelievable. We could not really understand what he was saying, but it was, you know, he was he was a fantastic man. And I remember my mother and I one day were sitting in the sitting room and watching a Betty Davis movie, and we were sort of on the verge of crying our eyes out because it was some dark victory or something like that. And suddenly, uh, my father came in and unplugged the television and took it out. I said, what's, what's going on? He said, oh, I've sold it, he said, but uh, you'll get a better one tomorrow, which we did, but we never f- f- had the end of the film. I mean, it was extraordinary. <laughs> to this day? To this day, I've never seen happened. it. No, no, I have no idea. I must look it up, actually. What does that do to your, like, as, as you've grown up? What, it sounds very uh, um, uh, coastery. your father's relationship with income. Very, up, up until a certain point where he becomes successful, it sounds like it was very up and down. What has that done to your relationship with money as an adult? Uh, that's a very interesting one. I'm terrible on money. I'm, I, say, I say I'm terrible on money, actually. I'm rather good, but I was terrible on money. Uh, and I had to, at one particular point in my career, I had to have a voluntary... Um, uh, oh, what's it called? A voluntary... Um... It's not not a bankruptcy, but the... Yeah, the voluntary, thing that... ba- right. voluntary bankruptcy, right. that's it, that's the word. And I really shouldn't have had that anyway. I think it was a, a quick way of my accountant and this other man making some 
quick money. Uh, but I did do it. And actually, it was rather good that I did it. And within a year, I paid all my debtors back. So were you one of those families who were hiding behind the sofa when the, uh, when the milkman came oh, to play? Very them? much so in my <laughs> early days. I mean, you know, things were, were tough, I remember. Um, and, uh, you know, but they, we got through it. And, you know, they, they had great sense of humour, both my parents. I mean, my mother... Uh, died last year at the age of 93. My father died about uh, uh, 15 years ago. Uh, but my mother died last year at 93. And uh, when we, my brother and I... I'll come back to my brother in a minute. My brother and I uh, were um, visiting and she didn't know who we were. So I went home and I prayed to God that he'd take her. And he did, thankfully. But the week before that, I went down. I spent three hours with her in Salisbury. And I... Um, <laughs> I eventually, she just lay there with her eyes closed. And eventually I said, Mum, I've got to go now. Can you see me? And she opened her eyes. Of course I can see. You're so bloody big. <laughs> and those are the last words my mother said to me. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. That's <laughs> Which, fantastic. You wouldn't want it any different. Any different. Yeah. I mean, I laughed and laughed. And still to this day. And it was she, was she was a very funny woman. As was my father very funny, too. I mean, I, if I have any wit or humour, it's, it's from them, without any doubt. And you just have, is it one sibling? One sibling. But this is a, a fascinating story. Because when I left school, uh, St Probus, um, and... And my elocution mistress, Mrs. Christian, uh, not only made me speak beautifully, as I am doing now, but she also encouraged me in the theatre. So I did plays and my music teacher encouraged me. He was my piano teacher, but I didn't learn any piano because he was a gossip and we just gossiped all the time. All I can play very badly is Daffodil Dell. Uh, but, and we're uh, going to wheel in a piano yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. Uh, anyway, so I, I had a real interest and so... We luckily, in Salisbury, had one of the finest repertory companies in the country, run by a wonderful man called Reggie Solberg. So uh, when I was 16 and a half and left school, and I didn't know what to do, I mean, I perhaps I should have gone to university, perhaps I should have gone to a college, perhaps I should have done something, but I, anyway, I went to the theatre, and I knocked on Reggie Solberg's door, and I said, uh, Mr Solberg, can I have a job? And he went, well, you can come and do She Stoops to Conquer for two weeks. So I was so excited and I stayed for two years. And that was the most incredible two years. And during that two years, I met so many wonderful actors and actresses. My real, uh, my, my, what's the word? Uh, she was really so keen on me and, and me doing well, called Stephanie Cole, who is a brilliant actress, still is to this day. And she insisted I go to drama school. So I went off to drama school. But prior to that, we had a, an actor in the company called Robin Ellis, who went on to play Poldark. And of course, I was in the first series of Poldark, playing the sex-crazed vicar. And my, he invited my parents, uh, up until that point, up until the point of when I was uh, 18 years old, uh, I had, uh, no, I was just me. I was an only child. And as I was leaving home to go to Bristol Vic Theatre School, my mother said to me, oh, she said, by the way, she said, I'm pregnant. I said, don't be so stupid. I mean, the thought of one's parents still doing it was <laughs> appalling. I know differently now, but at the time I was absolutely appalled. And suddenly I, was, I had a brother called Sean, who's 18 years younger than me. And um, he's not a, a brother, he's a friend, you know, because I was away when he was growing up. And I remember he, I was doing a play called London Assurance at the Aldwych Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company. And he came to see it with my mother. I think he must have been about seven. 
And uh, I, he, he said at lunch before the show, the matinee, I, he said, uh, where are we sitting? So I said, well, I've got a box for you. He went, oh. And he looked very puzzled. And all the way through lunch, he was very, very quiet. And eventually he said, towards the end of lunch, he said, Chris, he said, will there be holes in the box for us to breathe through? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Two worlds colliding. I know, yeah. I know. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio. Today, Christopher Biggins takes Jeff on a trip down memory lane. What passed for entertainment in your home in Salisbury when you were growing up then? Um, you mean when I was in my formative, my young years? Yeah, I'm years. Thinking, thinking little little Chris, maybe. I don't know, you're six, seven years old. Is the radio on? Oh, the no, no, ra- on? it was the radio. It was definitely the radio. I mean, I used to what, listen to the archers out of the bed clubbers. You know, it was a, a sort of a guilty uh, pleasure. Um, and, uh, it, and then there, were, there was television, obviously. But then in those days, you know, there were only, I mean, I think there were only two channels. Uh, you know, and then we got BBC Two, and then three, and then we got Channel Four, and then, you know, things started to go. I mean, you know, I was worked in television with, uh, for instance, the first thing that comes to mind with Cilla Black doing a show called Surprise Surprise, where we used to get twenty million viewers. Well, that is that is never to be again. I mean, you know, if and you that's get... not to say there aren't great TV shows. It's just there are so many channels. Everybody's course, watching their own thing. That's exactly yeah. right. I mean, you know, and uh, so now if you get three or four million, you're a hit. But we play to 20 million. I mean, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. It, it is unbelievable. And I think probably, that's... probably on Safari got more viewers than a lot of the hit oh, peak shows that we would watch today. On Safari was a hugely popular show, and as was rent a ghost on the BBC. So, you know, I've been in the business now for 54 years, I think it is, 55 years. And uh, it's amazing. I, sometimes I look at my CV and I think, God, I've done a lot. I mean, you know, and then I can understand now why I'm a sort of icon because people, uh, you know, people often come up to me and say, oh, you know, Safari Sagoody or... I, I mean, was... I've, I've been fighting the urge to say it for the last <laughs> half hour. My catchphrase <laughs> yes. on Safari. I mean, you know, and there's, so there's a lot of people who like those sort of things. Then I'm really thrilled when people remember I, Claudius, because I think that's a bit more sort of uh, with it and sort of, uh, you know, uh, proper. Can, can you tell, um, if somebody comes up to you in the street, can you tell just by looking at them whether they're uh, an iClaudius person or a, a porridge person or an, an on safari surprise, surprise person? Very interesting question. I mean, I think that initially, no. And then once I chat to them and then they suddenly say, oh, well, we thought you were wonderful in Poldark playing the sex craze vicar. I know that they're sort of middle class. Right. And uh, verging to upper class. And, and you know, they were they, they loved their television at that particular point. So, yes, you can, but you have to have a little bit of a conversation with them. I'll tell you what blew my mind recently, and uh, I don't know how I had never noticed this before. I was watching Rocky Horror Picture Show. And there you are in it. It's just a jump to the left. Yes. And a step to the right. I had no idea. Put your hands on your hips and bring your knees in tight. I had no idea. Christopher Biggins, who, you know, feels like this domestic, (laughs) this national treasure. But there you are in this film that is beloved... Worldwide. Oh, I can't tell you. I was so excited. We, uh, the, I played one of the uh, 16 Transylvanians and uh, we were on the film for 10 weeks and we got £100 a week. At the end of it, I bought a sofa bed and we were stoned every day. I mean, it was incredible. <laughs> it was just fantastic. I mean, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And, you know, what was so good about it was that I went to the very first night 
at the theatre upstairs at the Royal Court of Rocky Horror. And, of course, we were all blown away because it was the most... We'd never seen anything like it. Never, ever. I mean, Richard O'Brien, who is a friend still to this day, I mean... It's extraordinary what he put on paper and, and wrote. And it was amazing. And, of course, Tim Curry was sensational. I mean, he was brilliant, as were a lot of people. Pat Quinn, um, a, a lot of the... Everybody was just wonderful. So because I knew them, because I was at that first night, then I was a, a, a prime candidate. And also being big, because they wanted all freaky-type people. Um, we were all cast and it was cast from friends of the cast and the producers and the writers and everything like that. So it was, it was a lovely family thing to do. Um, we had American stars, of course. We had Susan Sarandon, who I met recently, funnily enough. And uh, she, I know she didn't like doing it and she wasn't very well. And But she, she did say at the end, because I said, you wouldn't remember me, but I was in... Um, Rocky Horror Picture Show with you. And she said, oh, where are you? You know, sort of a bit like that. And by the end of the uh, uh, evening that we'd had together, she was really, she's a very nice woman. And she said, I do remember you now, Christopher, and I remember having a lot of fun with you. And so she she reluctantly uh, accepted that it was something which was rather good. But what was interesting is we made the film and there was a big premiere in London and it was a flop. It was an absolute flop. It was everyone came out totally depressed and no one could really understand why. But then America took it to its heart and they all joined in. And that's where they started to throw things. And it was on every week for years. You could go to midnight screenings in cities in New York, L.A., across the States. People would dress as the characters. (laughs) They would. It was when you could smoke in cinemas. And I I believe they would smoke those herbal cigarettes (laughs) that that they have. And and did you ever go to any one of those screenings? I never went to any of the ones in America. I've been to the ones in in England, but um, because that now they're very popular <clears throat> and I did do the stage show playing the narrator which the fans were loved because of course me being in the film and in the stage show and it is the most extraordinary thing to do I mean I did it with a wonderful actor called David Badella who is uh, played Frankenfurter who is just superb as good as Tim if not better funnily enough and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. It was a, a great experience. I mean, it's an extraordinary show and it will last forever. I mean, and you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Um, we're a long way from Salisbury at this point. Yes. We should, we should wind, wind it back to, to yes. try and uh, uh, stick to the, 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 the thin gruel concept of the programme. <laughs> who was your best friend in, in Salisbury? Uh, my best friend was John uh, Brown, and he, uh, he, John and I, he was very tall and thin, and I was uh, tallish, but not as tall as him, and round. And we were a great combination. Where we did had, you meet each other? At school. And uh, he was fantastic. Uh, he was a lovely man. And we, I remember we used to go, uh, much to the chagrin of the rest of the boys, we'd go on cross-country runs, and John and I would make them cross-country walks and, and pick a lot of flora. <laughs> and we arrived back, and the boys couldn't go back to school or back to wherever until we'd all arrived back. No man left behind. No, exactly. Yes. So hours later, we'd stroll in with handfuls of beautiful flowers and things and, you know, talking, gossiping and what have you, and the boys were so angry with us, but we didn't care. And then we all went back, and he was lovely. And I remember we used to go uh, every Saturday morning, we would go to different coffee places, in Salisbury to have a coffee. And uh, my mother was in that industry. What what age are we talking? Oh, I suppose we're talking about 
13, 14 years so old. So you're a pair of sophisticated 13-year-olds. Absolutely, very sophisticated. And my mother, who was in the uh, hotel business, as I mentioned before, she uh, impressed on us to always tip, you know, because that's where she made a lot of money and that's where... So we, we, we did. But one day we thought it was very clever and I wrote on a piece of paper, uh, tip uh, at the top, T-I-P, very big letters, the 4.30 at Redcar and put a horse down and folded and gave it to this woman. And uh, I got such a whack from my mother. I mean, she was not impressed. I'm guessing she had been the rece- on the receiving end of a uh, similar, exactly. similar pranks. Exactly. So they, that was a, we, we were taught a lesson by that. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio. As someone who was a teenager in the swinging 60s, did, did the music of the era, was that something you were interested in? I love the, the music. I mean, I was a great... Great um, fan of um, oh, I, my, this is my brain now is going of uh, Stevie Wonder, right? I mean Stevie Wonder, I just adored. I thought he was great. So wh- where were you, where were you hearing that music? Radio like the pirate radio? Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, and uh, and also yes, on pirate pirate radio. Yes, you're right. Uh, but it was, and I just loved all his all his stuff. I mean, I still love it to this day. Interestingly enough, I like the Beatles. Um, but it's only recently that I've really realised how good they were. I was never a Rolling Stones fan. That didn't do anything for me. I tell you who I did love, uh, because an ex-lover of mine took me uh, to uh, see Bruce Springsteen, and that was incredible, a fantastic concert. Um, so music has is, is been very important in my life. And what do you remember the first record you bought? I do. It was uh, Max Bygrave singing, I'm a blue toothbrush, you're a pink toothbrush, uh, uh, whatever the Lex lyric is. But, I mean, yes, it was, it was Max Bygrave. Where did and you buy it, was, it from? I bought it from a, a record shop in Salisbury, and it was a big, you know, uh, re- uh, record. It wasn't a, uh, an album. It was one side, but it was uh, a wax. 78 RPM, that's yes. The, that's the very word. That's yes. exactly what it was, and I was thrilled. I loved it. Um. The school you went to, did you say it was called St Probus? St Probus. St Probus, I did begin. Yeah. No, no. Um, and, and which teachers stick out from that school? Well, there was Mrs Christian, who obviously encouraged me to be an actor. Uh, there were three things I wanted to be as a child. Uh, one was uh, a chef. Uh, one was a, uh, a, a, an actor. And uh, one was a vicar. And you've now, played a vicar. I've played many vicars, funnily enough. Not only Ozzy Whitworth, but I played a lot of other vicars. So I've all, I've I've cracked that. <laughs> I've uh, I do a lot of I've done a lot of cooking. I was on Master Chef, uh, where I went to the semi-finals. So I've cracked that. All I've got to do is crack the acting, and I've done all three. <laughs> so it, it, you know, I it was uh, it was interesting, you know. And what what about crushes as a teenager? Where, where, where did that go in that day and age? Isn't those impulses. Interesting. I don't know whether we. I suppose we must have had crushes. I can't. Nothing springs to mind. Actually, funny enough, when I think about it, I've never been asked this before. Crushes. I think you know, in a funny sort of way, this will make you laugh. I think Alma Cogan was a big crush that I had. Uh, she was the uh, the singer. Uh, with the giggle in her voice. That's right, yes. And she used to wear outrageous frocks, and I used to love her. I thought she was fantastic. Uh, but I can't think of anybody else that I was really madly in love with. So you didn't, you sort of weren't aware of your sexuality at that point? Not at all. I mean, I was a very late uh, comer, I suppose, in that in that respect. Um, 
I, I did have a bit of a fumble with the head boy in Paris. We all went to the on school trip, but that was uh, that was just something that happened. I mean, I never really got into sex. It was very funny because when I went to Salisbury Rep, um, obviously there were a lot of gay people in the company, but I didn't know what gay people were or meant. And there was an actor in the company called Raymond Bowers, a brilliant actor. And uh, I came back, we, we, we all, I was propping, and Reggie Solberg liked people to get into the bar and at coffee time and have a coffee and meet everybody else. So there were actors and there were directors, there were designers, there were, uh, you know, uh, ASMs, everybody. Everybody was there. And I was queuing for a coffee. And Raymond Bowers shouted at the top of the voice, there's that Christopher Biggins, he's so gay, he's a lesbian. And everybody screamed with laughter. And I didn't know what any of the words he'd said meant. So you're straight home to the dictionary. Well, I, I know. I went. To, I think I went to Stephanie Cole and she explained to me. And I really was very naive. And that, that I was 17 years old then. And uh, so it, it, it wasn't until, I think, probably when I went to drama school that I, I found out about the sexuality that I was about to uh, spend the rest of my life with. How true is it that Salisbury Rep was the place where you found your people, oh. you know, your chosen family? Oh, without doubt. It was just fantastic. And I, there was a, a married couple called Jonathan Cecil, who's no longer with us, but Vivian Heilbronn, who is uh, still in the business, and they were married and they were fantastic to me. When I came to, to live in London, they had a house in Fulham, Ifield Road, and I, uh, they gave me, uh, we got on very well, they gave me two rooms in their house for £5 a week. And so I had a bedroom and a sitting room and a use of the house. And I, they put me on the ruin of uh, the lifestyle to which I've become so readily accustomed. Because £5 a week was, I mean, it was not nothing, but it wasn't anything, you know, and two rooms... And it was just a joy. I mean, I was spoiled beyond measure. And what did what was your relationship with Salisbury like once you left it? I mean, how how interested in going back for the weekend were you? I was. I hated it. I I just couldn't bear it. I mean, it was sort of. I was so thrilled to leave it, and I I hated going back. I hated the journey. The car journey seemed to take forever. Um, I when I when my mother was ill, I used to go down by train which made it slightly easier, but it was it was it didn't hold anything for me. So you never thought second home in Salisbury? No, no, never. And my father, when I left, my father was wonderful. He supported me at Salisbury Rep. He supported me at Brislovic Theatre School. And at the end of that, he said, right, now it's time for you to get a proper job. Come and work in Salisbury. We'll get you a house, buy you a house. And he he knew that I was interested in antiques, so he opened an antique shop. And I worked in it for a little while, and it was. What was it called? Uh, I think it was called Biggins's, I think, or something like that. And it was it was so dull because a you wouldn't see anybody for three or four weeks, and suddenly you, about a hundred people would come in on the last day of that three or four weeks, and they would come in and they would steal everything. I mean, it was just a nightmare, and I I hated it. And I, even though I like antiques, my father really got into it, and when, uh, towards the end of his life. He had a, a bric-a-brac uh, lock-up, and he used to repair watches and sell things. And, in fact, he was very successful. 
and he really enjoyed it. And I still meet people. I met someone last weekend who came up and said, oh, I knew your father. I used to go to his lockup and we'd have a chat and I bought lots of things. I mean, he had this, there was an amazing amount of rubbish in there, but there were one or two nice things. And also he loved doing it and he made money out of it. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio. So at this point in your life, have you mellowed? Do you feel any fondness towards Salisbury? No. Any, so we're, we're having Christopher Biggins cremated, hopefully many years in the future. <laughs> None of the ashes are, are going to be scattered no, there. No, I'm afraid they're not. I mean, um, my both my parents are there. My brother now has moved to Bath with his third wife. <laughs> uh, my, <laughs> my niece and nephew... Uh, they live in... Uh, my nephew's gone to a university, in, I think in Southampton, and my niece works in a, a hairdresser shop in, in Salisbury. Uh, so, you know, I do have connections there. But I, it's not somewhere that I, I want to go back to, really. Well, if I, if I was to uh, give you a TARDIS, I'm good to give you a time machine, and I say you can go back and observe young Christopher in any of the locations we've talked about today. Would it be the rep? Would it be the caravan? Where would you like to spend five minutes as, as a silent observer? I think probably it would be... I think it would be Salisbury Rep. I think, I think it would be wonderful to go back, it was because the new theatre is a lovely modern theatre which they built behind the old theatre. And the old theatre was the most amazing building. It was an old uh, Salvation Army church, I think, uh, if I'm right, or some sort of church. And uh, it was converted into a theatre. It was so wonderful that when it rained, rain used to come in through the, uh, through the roof and we used to put buckets around. The atmosphere was fantastic. I mean... Everything that happened during that two years was wonderful. It was the most exciting time. At the end of it, I became a full member of equity, uh, which was very rare in those days, and and, and a necessity, not so much now, a necessity, and I still pay my subs to equity, so I'm uh, thrilled by that. And it was was somehow, it was, I learned so much. I mean, and the laughs we used to have, I mean, there's, uh, I was on props for this play, and it was a, a thriller. And it opened, uh, the curtains went back, and it was midnight. And it was in the, uh, uh, the depths of Devon. And it was an isolated house, and there was a man walking up and down on the stage. And then the first thing that happened was the phone went. And on this particular night, walked up and down, and I'd forgotten to set the phone. So my stage manager, Jan, who was brilliant took the phone from the prop table, went and knocked on the door. He opened the door. She said, good evening, sir. I've come to install the telephone. She came on. She put the telephone on the table, put the wires underneath the carpet. He went, ring, 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 ring. And the play went on. I mean, that... <gasps> That's wonderful. I mean, you know, you don't get stories like that. I mean, you know, there, there are... It was... I love theatrical stories. One of my favourite theatrical stories is that there's uh, John Gielgud, Ralph Richardson and Edith Evans on stage. And they all dry at the same time. So the prompt comes from the corner and no one picks it up. And the prompt gets louder and louder and louder. And eventually you can hear it at the back of the upper circle. And Gielgud turns to the prompt and says, we know the line, who says it? Oh, Christopher Biggins, thank you so much for, for showing us around Salisbury today. You'd, if they were unveiling the Biggins statue, you'd go back for that? Of course I would. You know, depending on availability. <laughs> Uh, thanks and depending so much. on what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for, for spending this time with us. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it enormously. Roll up, 
roll up. Welcome to Union Jack Radio, a radio station playing just the best of British music. Comedy. You stupid little plonker. I have a cunning plan. He's a very naughty boy. And absolutely mad listeners. Union Jack, you're a right plonker. Fee, fi, fo, fum. Union Jack's a load of fun. A bloke stopped me the other day. He said, excuse me, mate, is there a B&Q in Wigan? I said, no, pal. W-I-G-A-N. <laughs> Fastest growing station in the UK. And every song's picked by the listener on the Union Jack app. 20 million votes and counting. Union Jack Radio. Playing the best of British and doing radio differently. <laughs> 